0: Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host today on the Gifts of Freedom. I'm based in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a genealogist and the president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition here in Kansas City. I'm also a board member of the Missouri State Genealogical Association. We're going to continue our reading of the book, The Black Abolitionist, by Benjamin Quarles. Uh, Joining us tonight, we have a guest, historian Leon Waters. Mr. Waters is the chairman of the Louisiana Museum of African American History. Are you there, Mr. Waters? Yes, I am. Okay, good. Glad to have you aboard tonight. Uh, Could you tell our audience just a little bit more about you, in addition to uh, being the uh, chairman of the Louisiana Museum uh, of African American History?
1: All right. Well, briefly, um, I run a small um, company called Hidden History. Hidden History is um, research, publishing, and tour operation, where I work to provide tours for our young people and the general population so people can learn, particularly youth, can learn whose shoulders they really stand on. And so my um, my tours um centered around the largest slave revolt in American history, the 1811 slave revolt that happened here in Louisiana, covering the parishes of Orleans Parish, St. John the Baptist Parish, and St. Charles Parish, and St. James Parish, along the Mississippi River. Um, I'm a descendant of the 1811 Rebels. In 1995, I published a book called On to New Orleans, Louisiana's Heroic 1811 Slave Revolt. And uh, about two years ago, that book was hijacked by a white chauvinist a young man named Daniel Rasmussen. With the assistance of people like Eric Farner and Louis Gates, he has now has a book out on the street called American Uprising, the untold story of the 1811 revolt. Um, 1811 revolt grows out of the sharp, class conditions, as well as conditions of national oppression existing on the river parishes. Uh, Following the heroic defeat of France in Haiti, a number of slave owners fled Haiti, and they brought their property to Spain, I mean to Cuba. Some of them brought their property to Louisiana and set up shop. Among them was a man named Charles, who would later uh, be forced to uh, Take up the last name Des long. And after many months of uh, Planning and what have you We don't know exactly how long But over a period of time He was able to pull together A network of the most Trustworthy, the most loyal And the most determined Of women and men And they in time Set out A plan whereby they popularized the idea that it's not enough of us, it's not enough to run away and become a maroon and live in the swamps, As difficult and hard that was, and it's not enough of us to try to escape many of us down here did make it to Canada, some of us did, but many of us went west to Texas and then south. You ever get a chance to go to Mexico on the eastern side of Mexico, the complexion is much browner and darker than those on the western side of Mexico. And that's because of the runaways intermixing with the Hispanic population. But they have long advanced the idea that in order to achieve complete freedom, we must topple the existing system and replace it with our own system. And so the aim of this revolt was to establish an independent republic, and they almost succeeded after several days, it was a two prong attack one prong of attack was to march down the river they after they had elected by the way their leaders, women and men who led them on horseback, they would march to New Orleans and liberate fighting their way to New Orleans. About 40 miles away, as more enslaved people would join in, the goal was to capture the city of New Orleans because at that time in history, New Orleans was the capital of what was called the Orleans Territory. Louisiana was not a state yet, it would become a state the following year. The second prong attack was that they had dispatched. a a detachment of men and women whose job was to get inside the city. They had a detachment of women and men whose job was to get inside the city. At that time, the city was surrounded by five forts. The city was walled in. And their job was to get inside the city and capture Fort St. Charles with hundreds of rifles, ammunition, and weapons for house. So as this slave army, which um, which became over 500 men and women, marched to the city, chanting in 50 different languages, two main slogans, on to New Orleans, which represented the, the, which represented the call, we're going to seize state power. And the second slogan was, freedom or debt. As they marched to New Orleans to capture the city, they had an advanced detachment inside the city and those two were going to emerge once the main army, main army of slaves would get there and to, to seize certain institutions where they could then say, we have now captured New Orleans, we can now establish a provisional revolutionary government, we can, we can now say we have liberated territory, and they anticipated that once word would get out that land was emancipated west of the Mississippi River, they anticipated that as slaves hear this, they would run to New Orleans. This would then place the American government in a precarious situation. Either the American government, which was being Congress, was directly running this area at that time. They would either have to send soldiers, wage war, a guerrilla war with these people, or they would be compelled to cough it up. Either way, it would have had a tremendous impact. Theoretically, slavery could have ended 50 some years earlier. However, they were not so successful. The revolt was put down three days later, but the children and the grandchildren of these magnificent heroines and heroes continued all the way up to the Civil War. That's why they were co- contributing as as one it is really amazing because as a result of that, Louisiana contributed more soldiers to the Civil War than any state over twenty eight thousand. Go ahead, sir. Yeah,
0: on their defeat after those three days, were the rebels' heads tails, and placed on fences? Yes. In- so what happened was
1: there was a massacre at a place called Bernini Plantation. Today it's, it's called Narco, Louisiana, where it's the center of much of your natural gas and petroleum industries. The natural gas and petroleum industries now have displaced what was plantations, and now we have a new kind of plantation existing okay. today. About okay. 60 more people get massacred, and about 60 more will get, get captured, and they will be placed on three trials. And, of course, all of them were found with the crime guilty of the crime of insurrection. They were all tried by the largest plantation owners made the jury, <laughs> and they were found guilty brought back to their respective plantations a diameter of 65 miles. And they were then shot, beheaded, and their heads were placed on spikes for about 65 miles up the river and down the river as a warning, never resist a rebel again. And what river was that
0: in case people want to look on a map?
1: That's the Mississippi River.
0: The Mississippi River, okay.
1: Yes, that's the Mississippi River. Uh, where the majority of the plantations grew uh, from the river. The river was the, the was used for transporting the commodities that the Africans would produce. They created all the wealth, and the um, owners would use the river to ship their products from New Orleans to the East Coast of the United States and to Europe. <laughs> it's quite a phenomenal heroic and great story, a story that we're trying to get in every school library in this country. Okay. But it's one of many, many stories that have been suppressed, uh, you know, a so conscious effort to keep our history buried. So that's on to New Orleans. And Louisiana. The Look, on Eastern. to New Orleans, Louisiana, he, Louisiana's heroic 1811 slavery vote. Okay. And that's it's 317 available. pages.
0: Okay, for thirty bucks,
1: yes, and
0: contact you at hiddenhistory.us. Yeah, hiddenhistory.us. Um, okay, uh, that book would be available. Now, in case you joined us late, we're talking to historian Leon Waters, who is the chairman of the Louisiana Museum African American, um, chairman yeah. of the Museum of African American History uh, in Louisiana. Got a lot of notes here. Is there anywhere that you would like to start, uh Mr. Waters, with your uh take on what we've heard? What impressed you the most?
1: Well, a couple of things. Um I find uh, I find the, the, the readings describing the um the building up, I call it, uh, popularizing the um the need to um end slavery. Uh, I think people should keep in mind that um essentially, you had uh, in my opinion, okay, you had two groupings you had a a core grouping of people uh, represented by people like martin R delaney uh, represented by people like uh, uh howland Garnett Henry Howland Garnett, that were popularizing um what I call revolutionary agitation, the same type of threads that go on in any quote revolutionary struggle. In every revolution and a struggle That uh, I haven't studied everyone I only studied 17 Okay, But uh, you see There's a a core Element um, That that is is very very committed And you see that's almost like A a party cadre So to speak And then you have the broad masses That are being brought up In united front type organizations And it's going to be those Social classes or strata that can objectively—I say objectively—because um, those who actually economically benefit from uh, the economic system won't. Well, those, those those strata can't can't play a progressive role in history. It's impossible because uh, they benefit from that. So within these uh, abolition societies, you have um, a, a real hard. Uh, committed core people that are actually revolutionary abolitionists. Okay, revolutionary abolitionists. The gentleman, uh, the, the the reading when it went, when the reading began, it mentioned a number of people who were reformers, and one of them they mentioned was Henry Holland Garnett I just want to bring sharpen the, the this conversation a little more. He was not a reformer. Okay, okay. mass numbers of people were members of the abolition societies they were reformers but they weren't revolutionaries or revolutionary abolitionists and what what needs to be understood is there's a distinction okay there's a distinction they may be working within the same general mass organization but there's a distinction reformers popularized the idea that we can get some improvements in society through reforms, but the basic structure of that society can be maintained, okay? Can be okay. maintained. Uh, we have a lot of these kind of people today talking such to what I call nonsense. And by, by making these little improvements in society, um, justice, equality, freedom, et cetera, will come about, all right? But then you had those other people who were uh, maybe numerically fewer in number who said, "No, uh, no, 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 no. We have to have a revolutionary overthrow of this of this society from top to bottom, from top down. We have to re- revolution is the replacing a one class in power with another class. That's all it is. Okay. And this country has had two revolutions in this country. One." bourgeois democratic revolution where the colonists rose up and defeated the British. It, from a scientific point of view, you had the rising bourgeois class in the United States that would organize the masses, but they their class interests their class would lead it and defeat Britain. Okay? That's why it's called a bourgeois democratic revolution. They introduced bourgeois democracy. Okay? okay. Okay. Which is democracy, which is democracy for the rich. Democracy for the world. That's all it is, okay? Uh, we'll do what we got today. Then, the Civil War will come along. And as, uh, uh, as Frederick Engels and Karl Marx uh, wrote it so clearly, um, they explained that, you know, the cause of the Civil War, what triggered the Civil War, as they put it, the present struggle between the South and the North. Is nothing but a struggle between two social systems, between the system of slavery and the system of free labor. The struggle has broken out because the two systems can no longer live peacefully, side by side, on the North American continent. It can only be ended by the victory of one system or the other. So uh, the Civil War, the Revolutionary Civil War that took place, was essentially a revolutionary bourgeois, democratic revolution, where inevitably uh, and what happened was the North would defeat. The, the, the more developed industrial North would defeat the economic system in the South. Of course, our people took advantage of that and used that as a means to win their liberation. Okay, But both of them were revolutions where the bourgeois class came to power. Uh, the bourgeois class that defeated Britain, and then the bourgeois class in the North would come to power and defeat the, uh, the South, and both of those uh, revolutions led to a new bourgeois class, okay, okay. running things. And what we have today in America, uh, we have a bourgeois. We have we have democracy in America, but it really is democracy of the bourgeois class, democracy of the rich, democracy by the rich, democracy for the rich. Even though you and I. When we went to elementary school, they said America is a country of the people. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's democracy of what was called the white property, white male property class, okay? And that's what we have today. We don't have any real genuine democracy for the overwhelming majority of people, okay? But what has happened now, so there's some other thing that should be said about that we'll talk about later, but but so I just think to sharpen our conversation, that people should be clear. People like Henry, Giles, Henry, Howland Garnett were not reformers because when you read his material, like let me just give you a quote from one of his um, his statements. He, he, he issued a call. He issued a call for a general rising of the slaves throughout the country as the only means to victory over slavery. Okay. His message to the slaves was uncompromising. He said, brethren, arise, arise, strike for your lives and liberties. What does that mean, strike for your lives and liberties? Does that mean asking a gentleman, uh, asking a slave, hey, can you, can you can you, please let me go? Uh, can you be moral? Can you be Christian? No, 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 no. He didn't say that. He said, now is the day and hour. Let every slave throughout the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. You cannot be more oppressed than you already have been. Rather die free men than live to be slaves. Remember that you are four million. Let your model be resistance, resistance, resistance. You know? And he goes on to further agitate. say, rather die free men than live to be slaves. Now, his strategy is this. In order to carry out a revolution, okay, there has to be what's called a revolutionary crisis existing. And what that means is the oppressor can no longer rule in the old way, and the oppressed is not willing to be ruled in the old way. Okay, The oppressed has, has the, the, the level of mass consciousness or the level of mass class consciousness has developed to such a point that the oppressed are no longer willing to be ruled in a war. now this doesn't mean a revolution will be successful. It just means that when these conditions are in place it's it's they, they're the conditions that mean a crisis exists and the crisis the the, the 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 oppressed people can only succeed if they have such a phenomenal, not phenomenal i should say that they have such a well tight knit discipline organization led by the most dedicated leaders and when they have that they have a good chance of being successful and in both of those situations the American Revolution and the Civil War those type of conditions existed so we don't want to we don't want to dishonor some of these people by labeling them as reformers or well, none of these people were eagles and Garnett was one of those who propagated the idea And Martin Delaney was another one of those who executed the idea, because uh, you know he was a major, and he really organized uh, an intelligence unit from all over the north. All the way had his tentacles all the way down in Louisiana, Louisiana, a spy network that that uh, which consisted of women and men, which enabled those black troops to do what they did. And capturing eventually surrounding Robert E. Lee, and forcing him to surrender. You know, I just want to just want to bring that, that, that point out. The, the hardcore people, more like your party people, are really the, the 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 architects of making this thing successful. Without them, so that
0: the that the reformers have any value?
1: Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Their value was they worked to popularize they worked to organize they worked to gather you know they gather forces that they had a very important role to play no no question about that i just think it is important that we understand that there were some people that were not they were more than just reformers. okay and, you know some people that were more than reformers, you know um another way to put it in it uh with, without certain people having such a revolutionary mindset, the enemy could not have been annihilated. Okay, now when you look at when he said the Civil War, the first couple of years it was going nowhere. I mean, it, 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 the Confederates were uh, winning. Grant had Lincoln uh, had incompetent troops, and he have really committed generals. You know, but that began to change when they decided to let these black soldiers, let these poor let them people come on in. You know, some people say, well. We were, we were worried that they would fight. We didn't think they was no, 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 no. That was another question. <laughs> they, didn't have, they didn't have no illusions about that. They didn't know that these people wanted their freedom. They hated slavery. What they were worried about was if we give these guys guns, will they turn on us and oh. try to get their own independent country? Will they do that? That's what they were concerned about. That's what they were concerned about. And they became the people who actually turned the war around. They turned the war around and, and, and and they end up saving the union at the same time freeing themselves so so they have a different kind of mindset now they have a different yeah. kind of mindset than someone who's just uh a sympathizer someone who who is a who, who goes along someone who who who's sympathetic or a follower you know the, a revolutionary mindset is a, just a high level of commitment, and it's a, it, it says, hey, you know if I have to die, I get fired's no, no problem." And that same kind of spirit developed all the way back to those historical revolts because after 1811, there were many, many, many more revolts, especially in the south and especially in Louisiana. That's all I'm trying to say. You see, mm-hmm. see my connection, see, I believe part of our problem today, I'm going to be perfect frank with you, in the last 50 years of uh, uh, King, Reverend King and Reverend King is credited with things that he was not responsible for. The average person down here in the Deep South, Western Louisiana, would pay. Oh, he brought about the housing, the voting rights. He brought about uh, uh, the, the civil rights. No, 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 no. Two of those things came into being before he was assassinated. If it wasn't for those rebellions, those rebellions, and it was hundreds and hundreds of them every summer, uh, those racist dolls in Congress were 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 juggling bill after bill They said we got to do something. Guys, these guys are going to destroy this country. You know. We got concessions as a result of the militant, militant, radical struggles and rebellions that took place in the 60s. But under the leadership of all these treacherous, uh, bought-off leaders, from Sharpton to Jesse Jackson to Benjamin Kellis to Morial, the urban leader, uh, uh, no, 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 no. Our people are asleep. And unless we begin to come clear that you have to rebuild the struggle, rebuild the struggle on the revolutionary path, then uh we are doomed because we're still oppressed in a different way. We've got to get clear that we are not we have not arrived. Uh we definitely are not emancipated. We can have a king holiday every day and the conditions of our people are worsening with wages getting worse, poverty wages result being put down to half pay piece of pay, part pay and which is driving our communities uh uh you should come down here. Uh, Post-Katrina world, this place looks horrible and it's worsening every day. And in my travels with the deep south, I see the same thing, same thing. The movement in our country has to be rebuilt. And I have my opinion, sir. It has to be built on a, on a revolutionary lines because this reformism that we have today by these well-paid six-figure reformist leaders um, is, is treacherous and is Worsening our conditions today and, I, and and history gives you Some some very good evidence Of how you made gains During one period And how you're losing gains In another period So it's so important To, to see the connections Of the historical revolts And, 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 and the period during, a, during the Civil War And you'll see the same things Taking place In other struggles Around the world Same thing I, I, I'm not trying to get off the subject I'm just trying to Don't bring the connection. Okay, uh,
0: because I'm seeing a
1: thread here
0: when you're talking about these alliances going back to the Civil War in terms of the white abolitionists Uh who were afraid of political equality sought by blacks co-mingling with social equality Mm -hmm. and then they're going to set up their own separate states and whatnot. And it seems then uh listening to you, and I'm, I'm following that thread, that the white abolitionists then formed an alliance with white workers of mm-hmm. the day who mm-hmm. were opposed to black advancement. Even those workers in the north yeah. weren't all that thrilled about seeing blacks free from the south because that would jeopardize their status. That's right. And, and That's right. listening to uh, your remarks, which I'm very grateful for, this thread has continued right up until today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I the mean, civil objectively...
0: Movement. If I yeah. hear what you're saying, and I'll let you go here uh, mm-hmm. on that, but as I'm listening to you, the Civil Rights Movement was a movement of the black middle class as opposed to the masses.
1: Well, you, you,
0: you, you, yeah, it led by. Now, keep going on. and
1: led by, and... and, and they benefited more. That's right. That's right. The fascists benefited. Right. That's right. That's right. The civil rights movement, like all struggles in history, all struggles in so, history for so and struggle with social change, there were essentially two lines. Dr. King represented the reformist line, okay? Okay. But there was a revolutionary line. Stokely Carmichael would change his name. H. Rap Brown would uh, lead the Student for Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to become the Student National Coordinating Committee. We saw the birth of the Black Panther Party. Okay, so we see the development and struggle of two philosophical views, okay? One view is saying this entire thing is so entrenched it has to go and something else has to replace it. But another view is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on, it's bad, it's bad, but we ain't got no that that far. All we got to do is sit down with these people, be reasonable with these people, you know, be nonviolent, cetera, it aside, and we can work something out. So what happens is the liberal wing of the bourgeois class, led by the Kennedys, Ben Johnson, embrace him, cultivate him, and then he becomes protected from all the blows of the police. If you go back and just study some things, Brother brother, did go to jail that many times. Once, once the liberal bourgeoisie saw that, wait a minute, if we could talk to this guy to make sure he doesn't go, doesn't go too far to the left, hey, then we can be in control of the movement, which they ended up being in control. The speech in 1963, the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, March on Washington, the speech was all edited by the Kennedys. They took a lot of stuff out which the more militant revolutionary forces were saying, no, we want this and we want that and we want that in. But he capitulated. And after a couple of times getting arrested, he didn't get arrested anymore. The masses were being bombarded with the dogs. The masses were being clubbed by by, by the police. I tell people, people have been taken in by so much kingism that they're being mistaught again in our or or really they're not being taught at all, about so much history in our schools. And so... We've been inundated, these last 40 years have been inundated with a level of reformist philosophy, reformism, and the only leader we ever had was Dr. King? Come on. Divorcing it from the the real emancipators, I call them, the real emancipators, from from the the brothers and sisters, the the irony of the Civil War is that here here Lee leads a a war to to continue the enslavement of the people but the people themselves are responsible for his surrender. Most black kids don't even know. The black troops surrounded him and forced him to surrender. (laughs) That's a powerful point. But all this is kind of kept away and kept out, so the people don't learn from the Civil War days, even up to date, the real role they have played. We have made games as a result of the militant, bold, revolutionary, radical stance and actions. That's how we got some gains. That's how we got some gains. We didn't get no gains by these $600 suited people who hit up all these uh, so-called fake organizations. Uh, no, no. They are just indoctrinating our people with a new kind of dope sleeping because they're, 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 they're being well-paid, okay? Come on. They're being well-paid. Sharpen gets well-paid for being on that TV show, that, that news thing. Donna Brazil, all these people, all of them. They oh, yeah, have the, benefited. They have benefited from the sacrifices and the real warriors. And I'm saying we should learn the lessons and get back on the right road in rebuilding our struggle for complete emancipation. Yeah, there's been some criticism of the Black History Month,
0: and that it seems to start right around in terms of the history that's gone over and over. Starts in 1954 with the uh, Brown decision. Right forward, yeah. There's really no significance or education placed on the people that we've been hearing about, and uh, the black abolitionists, and giving mm-hmm. the crux of of the movement, and having it dissected as you have just now. There doesn't seem to be any room, um, some critics would say, for that kind of dissertation. And that kind right. of conversation for Black History Month is being canned uh yes. so to speak. Um yes. and doled out to the masses and you know, our grandchildren, when they think of black history now, they won't go past nineteen
1: fifty four, past the right. the, the Brad's uh the Brown decision. Right, right, um, right. it's being designed and set up that way. <laughs> That's all being delivered. And and so So I just think that there's a lot in the history that needs to be, I like that word you use, dissected, to really pull out what's hidden, because what's hidden is not what's being massively popularized. By by popularizing all this reformist leadership and reformism, it's a form of keeping us oppressed. Under today's condition. And that gives us a segue. I want to
0: remind our listeners that they're listening to The Gist of Freedom. Uh, the producer is Leslie Gist, historian and author. Our guest has been uh, historian Leon Waters. I want to remind our listeners that Slavery by Another Name will be premiered in uh, New York City at the Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center at 3940 Broadway in New York City. Slavery by Another Name uh, is a film, uh documentary, uh, based on the book uh, Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. Uh, Sam Pollard is the producer, director. There will be a distinguished um, panel uh, involved in that discussion. Uh, Dr. Walter Greeson, uh, Stephanie Wilson, Michael Kohart, Chet White, Boyd Paul, Malcolm's daughter, Alyssa, will also be the moderator and the host. And uh, that'll be February the 16th. You can get a preview at www.conta.cc backslash y 9-A-L-T-B. We'll give you a preview of that uh, premiere of Slavery by Another Name. Um, Mr. Waters is an author of a book in reference to um, a slave revolt in Louisiana of 1811. Uh, Mr. Waters, you want to give our listeners uh, information on that title and where it can be obtained and your
1: contact information? I am not the author. Okay. I'm sorry? I'm not the author. I'm the publisher. The publisher. I'm the publisher. The I published the book. A gentleman named Mr. Albert Thrasher, T-H-R-A-S-H-E-R, is the author. Why don't you make a persuade me to, Why don't you sit down and make a list for everybody you know that's up in a, uh, so there's a group of us that worked on this collaboratively. And in the opening part of the book, we state that we do not believe we have located everything. But so this is like an outline we tell people. And the second part is, are the, are the, are all the primary documents we have located that substantiate the story, which makes it a fabulous piece. A fabulous piece that should be in every black person's home. That, 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 uh, that it's that the
0: waters, yeah, we're uh, we're running out of time. Oh, I'm uh, sorry.
1: People can check this dot www.hiddenhistory.us. And uh, we're about ready to open up
0: with our reading of the black abolitionist, uh, Benjamin Quarles. Abolitionists
2: yes. by Benjamin Quarles, continued. The set four side two.
0: Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of The Just of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator and author, Leslie Gis, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities.
2: Remond Matt O'Connell in July 1840 while both were in London attending the annual meeting of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. At one of the sessions, Raymond followed O'Connell on the program and opened his speech with a tribute to him. A month later, the two reformers dined together. In his remaining months abroad, particularly those spent in Ireland, Raymond spoke of O'Connell in unrestrained praise. When he returned to America in December 1841, he brought with him a great Irish address signed by Daniel O'Connell and 60,000 other Irishmen urging their countrymen in America to treat the Negroes as friends and to make common cause with the abolitionists. In his speaking tours back home, Remond exhibited the address, which in most halls extended from the rostrum to the front door. Hundreds would examine the document, including some Irish. But the American sons of Aaron were not abolition-minded. Indeed, as much as they admired O'Connell, they bitterly resented his proddings as to the Negro. Irish abolitionists, O'Connell, Richard D. Webb, and James Houghton, among others, were totally unable to transfer their attitudes to their transplanted countrymen. The fear of labor competition from Negroes was the dominant reason for the coolness of the Irish-American toward the abolitionist movement. There were other reasons, but none could be so tersely expressed as that of William C. Nell. The opposition of Irishmen in America to the colored man is not so much a Hibernianism as an Americanism. For the twenty years following Remond's visit abroad, a veritable host of Negro reformers made their way across the Atlantic. These included former slaves turned clergymen, like James W.C. Pennington, Henry Highland Garnett, Samuel Ringgold Ward, Jermaine W. Loguen, and Josiah Henson, the last named soon destined for fame as the original Uncle Tom. Former slave laymen who journeyed abroad bore names equally notable in reform circles, such as Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, William and Ellen Craft, and Henry Box Brown. To these must be added a component of free-born Negroes, among them J. McCune Smith, Robert Douglas, Jr., William G. Allen, William H. Day, Sarah P. Remond, Martin R. Delaney, and clergymen Alexander Crummell and William L. Douglas. Robert Purvis was one of the few Negro abolitionist leaders who did not come to England during the peak decade of the 1850s. He never repeated his visit of 1834. A circumstance much regretted by Sarah Pugh, one-time president of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, and herself a sojourner in the British Isles in 1853. The presence of the noble and gentlemanly Purvis would do a great good, wrote Miss Pugh in March 1853, because he was allied to the oppressed race, and because of his knowing all things and everybody connected with the cause from the beginning." But Purvis remained in America, even though later that year he and his wife seriously considered moving to England for good, as a result of the refusal of the Philadelphia chicken fanciers to receive into their exhibition any poultry from Purvis. He attributed his denials to their color prejudice, their coolness toward him having been made all the stronger by having won the first prize at the three preceding annual exhibits. Of the Negro Americans journeying to the British Isles, Some were bent on pursuing academic training study or professional study, as in the cases of Smith, Crummel, and Robert Douglas. Brother of Sarah Douglas, the last named, had come to London with a letter of introduction from the well-known portraitist Thomas Sully. Some made the trip, like Raymond, as delegates to a conference. Hennington journeyed to London in 1843 as a representative of the Connecticut Anti-Slavery Society to the World Anti-Slavery Society. William Wells Brown sailed from Boston in July 1849 as an officially accredited delegate to the Paris Peace Congress. Samuel Ringgold Ward came to England in June 1853 as an agent for the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada, his main mission to solicit funds for the assistance of needy fugitives. As if to spread their thin ranks as widely as possible, these visiting Negroes did not travel in company with one another as a rule. Occasionally, however, their paths crossed in attending official or specially called meetings. For example, the annual meeting of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society held in London in 1851 was attended by Cromwell, Garnet, Henson, and Pennington, each of whom spoke. Three months later, on August 1st, at the Hall of Commerce in the same city, the American Negro performers held a public meeting for the dual purpose of celebrating West India emancipation and condemning American slavery. With William Wells Brown in the chair, the large audience included two literary luminaries, Thomas B. Macaulay and the newly appointed poet laureate Alfred Tennyson. The length of stay of the visiting blacks varied, ranging from six months to five years both J. McCune Smith and William Wells Brown remaining for the latter span. A few came with the intention not to return, like William G. Allen and the Crafts. Those who originally planned to stay for a short time found reasons for extending their sojourn. J. McCune Smith spent his entire span in one place, but the others, including the university-based Crummel, did considerable moving around. In this respect, none could quite match William Wells Brown, whose wide-ranging travels took him, as he reported, to nearly every town in the kingdom. If there was one Englishman above all others to whom the visiting blacks were indebted, it was George Thompson. No stranger to Negro Americans, Thompson had first come to the United States in 1834 as an agent of the British and Foreign Society for the universal abolition of Negro slavery and the slave trade. A close friend of Garrison, Thompson shared his attitude toward Negroes, addressing them as brethren and sisters. Unpopular with Boston's non-reformist element, Thompson had constantly faced mob violence. I cannot describe the emotions of my soul in view of the wicked, murderous, and fiend-like disposition exhibited toward you in this land of Bibles and Christians, Susan Paul had written in a letter expressing gratitude for his labors. The Negroes who came to England were happy to meet such a long-time champion. Winner of a seat in Parliament in 1847, Thompson did all that he could for the visitors, furnishing them with letters of introduction, arranging their itineraries, traveling with them to meetings, and introducing them to audiences. Thompson's graciousness was characteristic of the general reaction to the Negroes. Abolitionists as a class were more highly esteemed in England than in America, Certainly the mission-bent blacks who crisscrossed the British Isles were most cordially received. Small in number, and transients for the most part, they posed no threat to the laboring man or to the purity of the national bloodstream. Hence they received that heartiest of welcomes that comes from a love of virtue combined with an absence of apprehension. A few examples may be in order. James W.C. Pennington was given a tea party at Surrey in June 1843, attended by 500 guests. A month later, he preached twice at the Queen Street Chapel in Leeds, a local reporter characterizing everything about him as impressive. Frederick Douglass had a similar experience upon his arrival in the British Isles in 1845. Wherever he goes, wrote visiting William Lloyd Garrison to his wife, he is the lion of the occasion. For twenty months, Douglas was hailed and fated, whether in England, Ireland, or Scotland, whether in large cities or quiet crossroads. Mayors presided over assemblies gathered to hear him. He dined with the great abolitionist Thomas Clarkson a month before his death, and he spent an evening with the economist-statesman John Bright and his sister. At a packed public farewell in his honor in London on March 30, 1847, he could truthfully point out that, although I speak of it myself, I have steadily increased the amount of attention bestowed upon this question by the British people. William Wells Brown arrived in London in late September 1849, after a ten-day stay in France, where he spoke admirably at the World Peace Conference. And attended a reception given by the French Foreign Minister Alexis de Tocqueville. In England, Brown was overwhelmed by public meetings. At a January soiree in Newcastle, he was given a purse of twenty sovereigns as a token of regard for his character and admiration of his zeal in advancing the cause of the slave. At Bristol, in April 1850, four hundred guests sat down to tea in his honor. In December, Brown was joined at Liverpool by William and Alan Craft, and for six months the three former fugitives journeyed through the Midland counties, northern England and Scotland. The trio repeated its triumphs of a year earlier in New England. "'All who see and talk with them cannot but feel a deep thrill of indignation at a system that would rob such persons of their humanity,' wrote the Liverpool Mercury." Hundreds were turned away at a meeting arranged for the three visitors by the Glasgow Female Anti Slavery Society. The crafts were received with rapturous applause, and Brown delighted the crowd with his observation that the United States welcomed the refugees from the banks of the Danube and Tiber, whereas here in Glasgow, 3,000 persons are assembled to welcome refugees from the banks of the Mississippi. At Bristol, the three reformers gave a new impetus to the abolitionist spirit. Arriving in England within months of Brown was James W.C. Pennington, there for a repeat visit. Hired by the Glasgow Female Anti-Slavery Society, he toured the length and breadth of Scotland, his tearful tales exciting sympathy and sorrow. In 1850, he attended the World Peace Conference at Frankfurt, returning to England with Henry Highland Garnet, For three years, the latter sounded his voice of vast compass in public places throughout the British Isles. Garnet so impressed the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland that they sent him to Jamaica as pastor of the Sterling Presbyterian Missionary Church. As Garnet sailed westward to his new charge, two other Negro abolitionists debarked to enliven the British scene. The most conspicuous of these was Samuel Ringgold Ward, whose circle of black chin whiskers could be observed only at close quarters. Huge in stature, witty and vivacious, Ward was an immediate favorite wherever he went. Although called upon to speak on behalf of a variety of reform causes and on the same platform with distinguished public figures, he never failed to acquit himself with honor. The Earl of Shaftesbury, who presided at his first two meetings, became his patron and the Chelmsford Quaker, John Candler, offered him 50 acres in Jamaica. The other abolitionist notable who came to England in 1853 was the youthful, light-skinned William G. Allen. Formerly a teacher at Central College, Allen had married one of his students, Mary King. When their engagement became known, Allen had been visited by a group of townspeople armed with tar and feathers, and his fiancée had been moved to a neighboring county by her protesting parents. But the determined couple married on March 30th and sailed for Liverpool nine days later. Once in England, Allen quickly published an account of his experiences, The American Prejudice Against Color, an authentic narrative showing how easily the nation got into an uproar, London, 1853. Priced at one shilling and written in Allen's typically forceful style, the book sold well. With his wife, Allen toured the Reformist circuit relating their story. Subsequently, he added three addresses to his repertoire, one on the history and prospects of the African race, another on the present condition of the American Negro, and a third on his probable destiny. In Dublin, for two years, he supplemented his lecture income by giving lessons in elocution. Befriended by such prominent abolitionists as Joseph Sturge and George Thompson, Allen solidified his support by his ability and integrity. In a letter to Garrison, he contrasted his reception in the land of John Bull with the patronizing attitude Negroes met with in America, even among abolitionists. As if to bear him out, his British admirers purchased control of the Caledonia training school at Islington and installed him as master, the first instance in this country of an educational establishment being under the direction of a man of color. Allen's success in promoting the cause in England was fully matched by that of Sarah P. Remond of Salem, Massachusetts, sister of Charles Lennox Remond. Well and favorably known in Garrisonian circles, Miss Remond had in 1856 been employed as a visiting lecturer by the American Anti-Slavery Society. Her moderate success on the platform in her native country was overshadowed by her triumphs abroad in 1859 and 1860. The somewhat supercilious Maria W. Chapman, who had spent six years in Europe, wrote to Sarah on September 4, 1859, asking whether she would like to have special letters of introduction from me. Miss Raymond had no such need. She bore a beguiling air of refinement, a genteel pattern of manners so esteemed as an ideal of womanhood in Queen Victoria's England. She carried herself with an air of high seriousness. Her speech was dulcet-toned and quiet, and her fluent vocabulary was free of unladylike turns of phrase. Unlike many of her colleagues, she avoided the sentimental, the heart-rending tales of Tom and Topsy. But of Miss Remond's effectiveness there could be no doubt. In August 1859 she gave three lectures in Bristol, her first appearance having been advertised by printed handbills. At one of the crowded meetings she was asked to express an opinion on the religious revival in America. She replied that it was not genuine since it did not include the abolition of slavery. The Bristol and Clifton Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, sponsors of her visit, expressed their deepest appreciation for her visit and their mournful sympathy for the slave. At its December 1859 meeting, the Leeds Young Men's Anti-Slavery Society hired Miss Remond as an agent and arranged a tight schedule. For three months, her life was a whirl of appearances at town halls, chapels, and school auditoriums that invariably were crowded to excess. When she appeared at Warrington in March, her address was signed by the mayor, the parish rector, the member of parliament for the borough, and by 3522 inhabitants. No previous address in Warrington having ever been more numerously autographed. At Dublin in March, at a meeting arranged by the Dublin Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, Miss Raymond's audience included university clergymen and professors, who were held as spellbound as those of lesser learning. At a meeting in Edinburgh in October, Miss Remond attracted an audience of over 2,000, with hundreds turned away. After speaking an hour and a half, she resumed her seat amidst enthusiastic cheering, which was prolonged for several minutes. Summing up the value of her services, the Leeds Young Men's Society reported that the thousands who heard her would never forget the experience. In point of time, Martin R. Delaney was the last of the better-known black abolitionists to pay an antebellum visit to the British Isles. Timing things so as to attend the International Statistical Conference at London in mid-July 1860, Delaney arrived fresh from a safari into equatorial Africa. At the opening session of the conference, the chairman, Lord Brougham, called attention to his presence. Amid great applause, Delaney bowed and for the five days of the conference he was a center of attraction. His subsequent stay of seven months was capped by his attendance as a special guest at the Congress of the National Association for the Promotion of Social Science, held at Glasgow, and his appearance before the Royal Geographic Society, in response to an invitation to give a report on his African exploration. From the time of Nathaniel Paul's visit in 1832, To that of Delaney, nearly 30 years later, Negro Americans had worked to strengthen the current of anti-slavery sentiment in Great Britain. Their audiences had been large and sympathetic, and their influence had been correspondingly great. After listening for a quarter of a century to their unsparing condemnation of human bondage, the British public found it hard to conceive of a single good argument in its support. On the eve of his departure from the British Isles, William Wells Brown could tell a Manchester audience that he returned to America knowing that he could truthfully assure Negroes and abolitionists that something is being done here for their cause. This deepened British hostility to slavery took many forms, such as supporting American abolitionist weeklies, particularly the one published by Frederick Douglass, sending money for the Underground Railroad and publishing and circulating books on Negroes of ability, such as Wilson Armistead's A Tribute for the Negro, 1848, and H.G. Adams's God's Image in Ebony, 1854. But the most significant manifestation of British hostility to slavery came with the outbreak of the Civil War, when the English masses and middle class became strongly northern in their sympathies, regarding the Confederacy as slavery's strongest bastion in the Western world. Thus did British abolitionist sentiment, nurtured by visiting blacks from across the Atlantic, influence international diplomacy and the outcome of the Civil War. Negro abolitionists, who could not do their bit by journeying to the British Isles, might express their sentiments toward the great English reformers, Wilberforce and Clarkson. Upon the death of the former in late July, 1833, Negroes showed their sorrowful esteem. The members of the Phoenix Society wore badges of mourning for a month, and another New York group sent a letter of condolence to the family. In Newark, one of the self-improvement groups held a memorial service, and at the Baptist Meeting House in Boston, John T. Hilton delivered a commemorative oration, Negroes in Philadelphia likewise assembled in solemn tribute to Wilberforce. His birthday, August twenty-fourth, was annually observed by the Young Men's Wilberforce Debating Society, and one of the two antebellum colleges founded for Negroes bore his name. Wilberforce's co-worker, Thomas Clarkson, was likewise honored in colored circles by having literary and self-improvement societies named after him. Upon his death in 1846, Negroes in New York held a commemorative service, with Alexander Crummell delivering a long and carefully prepared eulogy. Charles L. Reason recited an original poem, Freedom, of Comparable Industry, 42 stanzas, of which the following lines are suggestive. Well hast thou fought, great pioneer, the snows of age upon thy head were freedom's wreaths by far more dear than finest sculpture o'er the dead. Perhaps the best way to pay tribute to a fallen abolitionist was to stretch out one's hand to the slave. This could be done most directly through the Underground Railroad. Chapter 7, The Black Underground A Fugitive Slave, A Living Gospel of Freedom, Bound in Black Lydia Maria Child, 1846 On a day in early August, 1850, William Still of Philadelphia was approached by a man who gave his name as Peter Freeman, and said that he was looking for his long-lost mother and father, Levin and Sidney, former slaves like himself. William Still was an underground railroad operator, and hence familiar with dramatic incidents. But as Peter unfolded his story, Still stood almost transfixed for it happened that Levin and Sidney were his own parents, and therefore the man talking to him was an older brother he had never seen before. Such human interest stories about former slaves who journeyed northward, looking for relatives or in pursuit of freedom, or both, made effective propaganda for the abolitionist cause. Fugitive slaves on the wing tended to arouse sympathy and to stir the public conscience slavery was weakened far less by the economic loss of the absconding blacks than by the anti-slavery feeling they evoked by their flight and the attempts to reclaim them. Sympathy for the runaway slave was created and sustained by the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. Heavily weighted in favor of the master, this measure offended the popular sense of fair play. Without first obtaining a warrant, a master had only to seize his slave, bring him before any judge, and prove to the court's satisfaction that the person in custody was guilty as charged. The judge would then issue what was in essence a certificate of repossession. The alleged slave was permitted no trial by jury and given no opportunity to present witnesses to give testimony on his behalf. The abolitionists attacked the measure on the dual grounds that it was unconstitutional and that it legalized kidnapping. The latter contention was the more readily provable, particularly in the instance in which Richard Allen was claimed as a fugitive, much to the subsequent discomfiture of the claimant. The law was one-sided, but even had it been more fairly drafted, there would still have remained a great reservoir of sympathy for those who made the dash for freedom. A blend of the desperate and the heroic, their actions could hardly fail to win the admiration even of the great mass of people who did not care for the abolitionists and to whom the free Negro was someone to be tolerated rather than welcomed. Hence, the work of assisting runaways was in popular favor in the North, many whites being drawn into the work. Possibly the best known of these was the Quaker, Levi Coffin, whose 35-year record of slaves assisted ran to well over 2,000. Formerly from North Carolina, Coffin's success as a storekeeper in Newport, Indiana, and then in Cincinnati, afforded him the means for underground railroad activities. Two other abolitionists with long and almost as notable careers in helping fugitives were Thomas Garrett, whose Wilmington home was perhaps the best-known station in the East, and Canadian-born Alexander M. Ross, who took time from his career as a physician to recruit escape-minded slaves in Richmond, Nashville, Selma, and New Orleans. Any balanced analysis of underground railroad operations must include its Negro workers. In Ohio, for example, black people were particularly active. Abolitionist leader James G. Burney noted in February 1837 that slaves were escaping in great numbers to Canada by way of Ohio. And, he added, such matters are almost uniformly managed by the colored people. I know nothing of them generally till they are passed. The fugitive slaves who made their way through Sandusky were aided almost wholly by the town's 100 Negroes, led by a barbershop owner, Grant Ritchie. The state numbered not fewer than 100 Negro underground railroad workers. In Missouri, the loose network included a cluster of all Negro associations in St. Louis, which sped the fugitive to Chicago and points north. The great authority on the underground railroad, Wilbur H. Siebert, points out that the list of towns and cities in which Negroes were co-workers with whites in the movement was a long one. Moreover, he adds, many Negroes in states that bordered the slave regions found numerous ways to help the fugitives without much risk to themselves. Although Siebert is as objective as one could wish in his assessment of the Negroes' role in the movement, he unwittingly does not do it full justice. In his monumental Directory of the Names of Underground Railroad Operators, embracing some 3,200 entries, Siebert designates 143 names as Negroes. But in listing the following, he did not identify them as colored. James J.G. Bias, Frederick Douglass, George T. Downing, Robert Morris, Robert Purvis, Charles B. Ray, Stephen Smith, and William Whipper. Similarly, enlisting the membership of the Vigilance Committee of Boston, Still omits the Negro identity of William C. Nell and John T. Hilton, and in the roster of the General Vigilance Committee of Philadelphia, he does not indicate that Charles H. Bustill, Robert Purvis, C. L. Reason, William Still, Josiah C. Wares, and Jacob C. White were colored men. Of the variety of ways to assist fugitives, one in particular was suited to the Negro Operator that which entailed going into the South and making contact with those who were escape-blinded. The slave was more likely to place his trust initially in a black face. Moreover, some Negro conductors were former slaves who were familiar with the territory in which they operated. Some of these secret returnees were willing to run this special risk in order to rescue their wives and children. The most renowned of these black conductors was Harriet Tubman, who, like Nat Turner, was given to dreams and to prayers. Herself an escapee from Dorchester County, Maryland, in 1849, she made some fifteen excursions into slave territory and brought back more than two hundred fugitives. Short and spare, she hardly looked like a person with a price on her head. But she was skillful in avoiding detection, her coolness in a tight spot matching her courage. To her abolitionist associates, she became something of a legend, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, calling her the greatest heroine of the age. A less noted and less lucky conductor was Leonard A. Grimes, a free Negro. Grimes became a hackman in Washington, D.C., eventually owning a number of horses and carriages, all as available for rescuing slaves as for conveying paying passengers. In one of his ventures in Virginia, his native state, he was seized after spiriting a slave family away in a hack. Grimes spent two years in the state prison at Richmond. He then went to Boston and became the pastor of the Twelfth Baptist Church. But, as in Washington, he neglected no opportunity to assist a runaway. Most of the conductors whose names are lodged in record were based in the free states and hence were engaged in speeding the slave on his way rather than leading him out of the south. These middlemen included George L. Burroughs of Cairo, Illinois, whose job as a sleeping car porter between Cairo and Chicago gave him an unusual opportunity for smuggling slaves. The most enterprising conductor in Salem, Ohio, was George W.C. Lucas, whose false-bottomed wagon conveyed fugitives to Cleveland, Sandusky, and Toledo. At Elmira, New York, former slave John W. Jones secreted slaves in baggage cars bound for Canada. For some black conductors, the water was the freedom route. Slaves were carried across the Ohio on skiffs from Kentucky to Indiana. Negro crewmen might bring slaves aboard as stowaways on vessels leaving southern ports and bound for the north. Elizabeth Barnes, who worked for a ship captain at Portsmouth, Virginia, hid slaves on vessels sailing for Boston and New Bedford. New Yorkers Edward Smith and Isaac Gansey of the schooner Robert Center were charged by the Virginia governor, Thomas W. Gilmer, with having abducted slave Isaac, and $3,000 was offered for their delivery to the jailer at Norfolk. Shipping slaves from one northern port to another was far more common than the intersectional traffic, not to say less hazardous. James Ditcher, piloted slaves along the Ohio from Portsmouth to Proctorville. Fugitive slaves were a common sight on the canal boat running from Cleveland to Marietta and owned by Negro abolitionist John Malvin. It is to be noted that many runaways never left the cotton kingdom, taking refuge either in the towns or the swamplands. Other slaves preferred Mexico as their destination. A letter from a free, colored Floridian in an abolitionist journal in October 1831 urged slaves to turn toward Mexico because of its convenient location, its mild climate, its generous land policy, and its freedom from color prejudice. But to the great majority of footloose slaves, the region above the Ohio River had one irresistible attraction that Mexico lacked. A substantial black population, like themselves in language and outlook, and one whose feeling of simpatico needed no proving. A prominent feature of the Negro underground was the providing of overnight accommodations for the absconding slave. A white host might well be an object of suspicion to a newly-fledged fugitive. Upon reaching Philadelphia, where they revealed their true identities, William and Ellen Craft were placed with Barclay Ivins, a non-Negro, much to Ellen's alarm. I have no confidence whatever in white people, she told William. They are only trying to get us back into slavery. Levi Coffin noted that the fugitives who passed through Newport, Indiana, generally stopped among the colored people, although the latter were not always as skillful in concealing them as they might have been. But carelessness could hardly be charged to Chaplain Harris of Jefferson County and his associate, Elijah Anderson, despite the fact that their cabins were well-known stopping places for fugitives. Coming to Cincinnati in 1847, Levi Coffin found that there, too, most of the fugitives who landed in the city soon vanished into the colored quarter. Some of those who were taken to the Negro section wound up at a place most unlikely to be suspected of harboring fugitives, the well-appointed Dumas House, famous for its ornate saloon where one might find the biggest colored pharaoh game in the country. At Ross, Ohio, the Reverend William H. Mitchell gave overnight housing to some 1,300 fugitives over a span of 12 years. Mitchell's lodging house activities ceased in 1855 when the American Baptist Free Mission Society engaged his services as a missionary to the former slaves in Toronto. Runaway slaves reaching Detroit could find asylum at the residence of George De Baptiste, who had worn out his welcome in Madison, Indiana, because of his underground railroad activities. A slave coming to Chicago might be lodged with the well-to-do tailor, John Jones. At Philadelphia, the physician-clergyman James J.G. Bias gave his bed freely to slaves directed to his house by the white abolitionist Charles T. Torrey. Not stopping with his bed, Bias also gave to his overnight guests a quick medical checkup. Just outside Philadelphia, the Byberry residence of Robert Purvis, a well-known station on the underground, had a special room reached only by a trap door. Another wealthy black abolitionist, William Whipper of Columbia, a port of entry for fugitives from Maryland and Virginia, resided at the end of the bridge leading into the town. He put up as many as 17 slaves in one night, the next day sending them west by boat to Pittsburgh or by rail to Philadelphia in the false end of a boxcar he owned. In one instance, Whipper alerted Jacob C. White at Philadelphia that the fugitive he was dispatching was in a perilous situation, having seen his master that very day. At Westchester, Abraham D. Shad, fairly well off, but not in a class with Whipper or Purvis, entertained and forwarded black transients. In New York City, the home of Charles B. Ray was a haven for journeying fugitives, fourteen of them walking up the front steps one summer morning. But Ray was not the only black New Yorker to be so blessed. One hundred and fifty in a single year have lodged under my roof, wrote Henry Highland Garnet, and I have never asked or received a penny for what I gave them, but divided with them my last crust. Colored abolitionist leaders in upstate New York knew that runaways would be directed to their doors. Jermaine W. Loguin at Syracuse fitted an apartment in his house for these unannounced visitors. Those who came to Rochester made their way to the office of Frederick Douglass on Buffalo Street. Early morning arrivals sitting on the steps until opening time. In Albany, the home of Stephen Myers was an overnight sanctuary for black drop-ins on the last leg of their northward journey. The Buffalo home of William Wells Brown was a station on the Underground Railroad, Brown himself conducting 69 to Canada over a period of seven months in 1842. In the Northeast, the best-known rendezvous for runaways was the home of Lewis Hayden in downtown Boston. Hayden himself was a fugitive from Kentucky, his rescuer, Calvin Fairbank, having been arrested and jailed for helping him escape. Hayden had turned down an earlier opportunity to escape because he could not bring his future wife along with him. As if to prove himself worthy of Fairbank's sacrifice, Hayden welcomed fugitives to stop under his roof. When the owner of William and Ellen Craft, Dr. Robert Collins of Macon, Georgia, sent two deputies to reclaim them, William took lodging in the Hayden dwelling, temporarily barricaded for the occasion. One day when Harriet Beecher Stowe visited the Haydens, she was surrounded by thirteen escaped slaves. Upon settling in Newport, Rhode Island in 1855, George T. Downing quickly established himself as the friend of any fugitive alighting in that city. Individual assistance to runaway slaves was supplemented by the work of vigilance committees. And here too, the black people in the North played a distinctive role. A vigilance committee aided the fugitives in a variety of ways boarding and lodging them for a few days, purchasing clothing and medicine for them, providing them with small sums of money, informing them as to their legal rights, and giving them legal protection from kidnappers. A primary function of the vigilance committee was to help a slave establish himself in a new location to furnish him with letters of introduction, to help him find a job, and to give him guidance and protection while he was thus engaged in getting started. Hence, a vigilance committee was a combination underground and upper ground railroad, the latter comprising its efforts to help the slave locate within the United States. The time has come to stop running, announced Germaine W. Loguen, manager of the Fugitive Aid Society of Syracuse. Many of the Vigilance Committees had a totally or predominantly Negro membership. The greatest of these Negro-run organizations was the New York Committee of Vigilance, founded in November 1835 with David Ruggles as its secretary and general agent. At its monthly meetings, the committee listened to speakers like James Emerson, a seaman who had almost been sold into slavery after accepting work on a ship running to Petersburg, Virginia. Appearing at committee meetings were speakers like the wife of kidnapped Peter John Lee, her fatherless sons at her side. The committee listened to stories of colored children who had been hired as domestics and then carried into the South and sold. The committee publicized descriptions of missing Negroes and informed its members as to the arrival and departure dates of ships suspected of harboring slaves. At one of its meetings, Three destitute Africans were introduced with a plea for funds to help them return to their native land. On one occasion, Isaac Wright told his story of being rescued by an agent of the committee after having been sold into slavery at New Orleans by the captain of the Newcastle, J.D. Wilson. It was through the committee that Wilson was arrested and detained for the illegal sale of Wright and two other Negro seamen to attend a meeting of the Vigilance Committee tended to tear at the heartstrings. At the annual meeting in 1837 at the Zion Church, Alvin Stewart, founder in 1835 of the New York Anti-Slavery Society, was deeply moved by the strong emotions of gratitude expressed by the fugitives whom the committee had assisted. "'I could almost submit to become a slave for the privilege of making such a friendship,' he said to the gathering." Much of the success of the New York Committee of Vigilance could be credited to David Ruggles. He is a General Marion sort of man, wrote a contemporary editor, for sleepless activity, sagacity, and talent. Ruggles personally gave assistance to hundreds of runaways. The case of Frederick Douglass was a typical one. Ruggles sheltered the young Douglass for nearly two weeks, made his marriage arrangements, and sent the newlyweds to New Bedford, Massachusetts with a $5 bill and a letter of introduction to a locally prominent Negro, Nathan Johnson. Ruggles boarded incoming ships to see whether slaves were being smuggled in. He went from door to door in fashionable neighborhoods making inquiry as to the status of black domestics, New York law freeing any imported slave after a residence of nine months. In one instance, Ruggles went to the Brooklyn home of Daniel K. Dodge and brought away a domestic charity walker, a former slave. Although Ruggles got her a job, the obliging charity succumbed to a 'er ne'er-do-well and soon became pregnant, opening Ruggles to a volley of criticism, however unjustified, from those hostile to the abolitionists Ruggles resigned as secretary and agent in February 1839 because of trouble with his eyes and a clash with the committee. Ruggles kept no books and hence was never able to render an accurate account of monies received and expended. The committee could never tell whether Ruggles overdrew his salary of $400 a year and Ruggles, secure in his own sense of honesty, resented any probing of it. With the resignation of Ruggles, the New York Committee of Vigilance lost its driving spirit and much of its influence, but its record over a five-year span had been commendable. During its first year, it had protected 335 Negroes from slavery, and this figure was a sound approximation for each of the succeeding four years. The committee also won public acceptance of its contention that persons claimed as fugitives should have a trial by jury a measure they had advocated from their opening meeting. In May 1841, Governor William H. Seward signed such a bill, and a month later the Vigilance Committee held a victory celebration at Asbury Church. The presiding officer, Charles B. Ray, hailed the measure for sweeping clean from the statute books the last vestiges of slavery in the state.